0: Hey homies, welcome to another episode of Catching Foxes. This is Gomer. We have two ads back-to-back, one for betterhelp.com and the other one for Net Ministries. Great people, please support them. Also, someone pointed out that I said, (laughs) for Angie St. Magnets, that I said it's plural and but it wasn't. It was possessive because there's not multiple Angie's. There can be only one Angie. Today's episode is a joint episode with my homeboy, John DeRosa. Maybe you heard about four weeks ago when I played a two-year-old episode that we did together on Atonement Theology. Well, not only is that one of the most downloaded episodes on his channel, but it was also one of the most downloaded episodes now on Catching Fox's channel, so it blew up. So we did a joint show this last week. It's going to air on his program in a couple weeks. John is killing it over on the Theism podcast. So, we recorded an episode on the document The Reciprocity Between Faith and the Sacraments and the Sacramental Economy from the International Theological Commission. It opens up making reference to an old 1977 document, but this is a brand new Francis Papacy era document. I interviewed last week for four hours a priest of the Ordinary to the Chair of St. Peter, Father Justin Fletcher. We talked for four hours in my house. My dog barely barked, it was amazing. My kids were all hospitable and quiet in bed, so we had a very frank and awesome conversation about what it's like being a convert to Catholicism, married and a priest. We talked for four hours about it, so I don't know how I'm going to chop this up, but I do know that some will only be available to our patrons over at patreon.com cf. And then the next thing is I have a someone who now is at Notre Dame, Dr. Abigail Favale, she was on recently with pints with aquinas she made a move across country she just released a new book on um gender issues and so we're gonna go through that together so i'm super excited because i think she's a badass so we got a lot of really good stuff coming up um thank you all for sticking it out with me hopefully we can keep these interviews uh going and flowing until luke joins us again in the great beyond all right on with the show And now let's take a moment to talk to our friends over at BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include fatigue, lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment, and more. Now, let's be honest. Many of us have been there, especially in the last two years. So what we need to do is recognize that maybe, just maybe, our lack of motivation isn't because we aren't getting enough cardio. <laughs> it might be because we are, in fact, burned out. We often associate burnout with work, but that's not the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feeling burned out and BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, online therapy, wants to remind you to prioritize your own mental and emotional health. Talking with someone can help you you figure out what's causing stress in your life. If this is you, if you feel trapped in your life in any way, I would wholeheartedly recommend you getting personal counseling. Therapy can help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 24 hours. Catching Foxes listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com foxes. Thanks to our friends over at BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. The reality is that young people today are growing up in a largely post-Christian culture, making choosing the faith all the more difficult. A vast majority of Catholic youth are disconnecting from the church during their teenage years. Something clearly isn't working. Net Ministries is passionate about challenging young Catholics to love Christ and embrace the life of the church. That's why working alongside youth ministers, parishes, and schools, Net Missionaries help young people encounter the person of Christ through evangelization and discipleship. As a net missionary you will meet young people who need to hear your particular story your journey with the lord matters you can be an example to young people of how to make the faith their own allowing christ to enter into their lives your story has a purpose the lord has a call for you if you are between the ages of 18 and 28 and interested in serving the lord as a net missionary go to netusa.org/apply and fill out an application not able to apply yourself Share about Net's mission with a young adult in your life and encourage them to apply today. That's netnetusa.org slash apply. Thanks to our friends over at Net Ministries for sponsoring this episode of Catching
1: Foxes. I'm joined again today by Michael Gormley, who married his college sweetheart and is a father to four children as he balances his full-time parish work with tons of speaking and traveling. In evangelization and discipleship training, his main task is bent toward unifying personal faith with a sacramental and biblical worldview. If Christ is truly present in the Eucharist of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, then that summit of the Christian faith has to be found on every inch of Scripture and it is. Leading parish myth- parish missions, youth conferences, and diocesan events, Michael Gormley helps Catholics find Jesus Christ and make him alone the Lord of their lives. Michael Gormley, welcome back to the Classical Theism Podcast.
0: It is awesome to be on here to talk about divine simplicity.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're giving you a big break from that. I haven't done a show on that, I think, in like over a month. Oh man,
0: that's got to be breaking your heart. No, it kidding. does. It does. No, we're going
1: to get back to it. Actually, we have divine immutability and impassibility coming up. Nice. Um, but, but before that, <laughs> we're doing a bunch of stuff just on church stuff. So yeah. we did, you know, we did some stuff on that. I don't know if you've, yeah, I, I love the Jason Everett
0: them. bonus episode that you had. Yeah,
1: we're doing some bonuses. You know what yeah. we did? Vatican II, Dignitatis Humanae. I don't know if you've probably investigated on, that uh, religious controversy. Freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've we've been doing some third pillar stuff, as I call it, and uh, I'm happy to have you on to talk about faith and the sacraments. But before we get into the topic for today, you're always researching, you're always reading, you're always podcasting, speaking about cool new stuff. Well, actually, a lot of it's ancient stuff, but you're like making it new for us. What have you been up to since the last time we chatted on the podcast?
0: Oh man, what have I been up to? The funny thing was you're in your parents' basement right now, podcasting. I was in my sister-in-law's childhood bedroom when we recorded that atonement episode. Um, Cause we were visiting my in-laws, but um, yeah, man, we have been busy. I, so I've kind of refrained from a lot of traveling. Um, my daughter said to me the other day or a couple months ago, um, she said, dad, you know, like when you weren't my dad, and I said, what does that mean when I wasn't your dad? And she said, <laughs> well, I don't mean when you weren't my dad, but like, you know, when you were never around because you were traveling all the time and you could just hear like the sad trombone. Wah, wah, wah. So I was like, oh, man, they really took that to heart. And so I scale back a lot of my speaking. Um, I'm trying to do more stuff that I can drive to and whatnot. But um, so in scaling that back, I've doubled down our focus on what I'm doing in the life of the parish And it's been amazing because now I'm basically faith formation, sacrament preparation from womb to tomb. By the time you get to the funeral, that's when I'm done. Uh, But everything kind of leading up to that, um, except for holy orders. One day I'll get holy orders. But uh, I'm in charge of all the sacramental preparation. And what I've been doing is shining a light on the different, for like three months, we'll do an intensive study of like, what are we teaching people what textbooks are we using? What things are we using? What does the diocese ask of us? You know, what does Holy Mother Church and the general directories and all that stuff ask of us? And I realized that you can get into a pattern and someone said something of someone a long time ago. And so you just adopt it as like a rule of faith that is absolutely contradictory to <laughs> what we should be doing. So, a couple of things I've uh, been focusing on. First was infant baptism. And we came up, you know, you realize that you have people sitting in pews who don't know what the rite of baptism is, which we can get to in in talking about this document that we're going to talk to. You have people sitting in pews that haven't been in the church since maybe their baptism. And so what mm. I thought was, well, what if we gave them a guide, the the liturgical rites, all this stuff with the little red letter explainers and all that. Sure. But a, a little handbook for everyone in the pew pu- that also I sneakily evangelize the heck out of them while they're sitting there for 20 minutes waiting for the ceremony to start. You know, so they all have stuff. So I have all this stuff on infant baptism. I have all this stuff on... um the Bible verses that illustrate the centrality and importance of baptism that connect baptism to faith. And then I write a bunch of stuff, <laughs> catechism quotes. Like it's just chock full of stuff that I'm like, okay, how can I get this to the people and get them just thinking like, Oh, Oh wow. This event that I'm at is not just a, a cultural ceremony. This is something that's a, that's a game changer. So uh, I did that. Now I'm focusing all on faith formation for the sacramental prep years for first Holy communion, first reconciliation, and uh, I have found that um, that Pope John Paul II, while he might have had shady bishops during his reign, a lot of them towed the company line of orthodoxy. So you find, like, you can read a lot of the writings of, what's his name, uh, Theodore McCarrick, and a lot of the stuff that they say is, in, in certain regards, like some of the pastoral stuff, is very in line with JP2. They quote JP2 a lot, but uh, <laughs> their lives not so much. But I was going through a lot of these documents that have been put out by the USCCB and put out by the bishops, and they're chock full of some really good stuff, especially in the 90s where the last time we had any guidelines in my archdiocese published about First Holy Communion. So I've been going, which is funny, 1996. I'm like, oh, okay, revised and updated. But there's a lot of really great pastoral wisdom in there that – it's really hard to do in a large parish. So for any listeners that are at a large parish, mm. there are thousands of moving parts that you don't see behind the scenes. If you have th- 30 kids receiving First Holy Communion, that's a Mass. That's a Sunday Mass. But if you have 350 like we do, that's a month. Right? <laughs> like, people don't realize that. Like It is crazy. And so, But what we're trying to do in all these areas is push the sacraments to be family formation because when the parents don't go the kids will never go again until they're in confirmation mm-hmm. the majority of our confirmations it's me and you started this whole thing over confirmation and the atheism the keeping yes. atheism and confirmation so one of the things that broke my heart was last february on a retreat the majority of kids about 65 percent of the kids someone did the math literally it was like 65 percent of the kids have only been a confession once if at all when they mm. were in second grade so that's a parent problem parents failed them okay you can't blame the kids for that so what do we do we double down on the formation of the parents and we offer family penance services instead of just for the kids that's and, great uh, yeah and and hearing our priest telling us that people have come back to the church 10 15 20 30 years like it's incredible it is incredible And we are all about trying to foster that. So that's really what I've been focusing on. We've wound down every new Shabow. We're switching to a new um, seasonal schedule instead of a weekly schedule because that was killing me. And uh, every uh, Catching Fox has been going strong. So, yeah, we're still we're still chilling on those fronts.
1: No, it's great stuff. Your your atonement episode that we did last time is still one of our top downloaded ones. So I want to credit you for that, and the the stuff you guys have been doing on the sacraments was was great. I know I like that model of seasons. It's something I might have to explore for the future um, of the podcast, especially when, when life kind of gets crazy. You know, you take do, a little. You're doing summer so break. much, man.
0: You are doing yeah. so much. No one has more is more prepared for a podcast than you are i have been on uh, many many shows you send you send very excellent outlines you know all this stuff no one is more prepared
1: to- i was convicted though because you <laughs> said that i heard you say that when you used the podcast on catching foxes but then yep. last night i'm like oh shoot i never sent him <laughs> an outline for this show i said it to you late last night so yeah. i've been like that would have been ironic no but this is i like that um that seasonal model that was good because right especially you have the four kids a lot of things to balance yeah plus gives you know kind of gives us a little bit of time to miss you a bit, you know? <laughs> People haven't heard Every Knee Shall Bow in a couple of months. They're going to be hungry for it. Don't forget and that, us. Don't
0: forget us. <laughs> no, no, we won't.
1: Well, here's that's the origin of, of the show we're doing today. It's usually I hear you say something on Every Knee Shall Bow or Catching Foxes, and I'm like, oh, i got to bring Gomer on to talk about that because <laughs> you and Dave Van Vickle did a whole series yeah. on a recent document put out by the International Theological Commission, which is titled, quote, the reciprocity between faith and sacraments in the sacramental economy, end quote. And I have to admit, I was a little bit skeptical. In general, whenever I hear about like a document put out by some commission, I either think it's going to be like really boring or it's going to be like, um, you know, maybe have some weird ideas mixed in with it. I'm like, oh, man, what am I going to think about this? But, you know, you folks are actually arguing. This is a great document. So what's the document about, and why did you decide to do a whole series on it?
0: Yeah, so in the 1970s, in 1977, the International Theological Commission wrote on the sacrament of marriage specifically to talk about this pastoral experience that was super common, which is essentially baptized believers demanding the church give them the sacrament of holy matrimony. Even though they weren't practicing their faith, they didn't acknowledge Jesus Christ as the risen Lord— And they weren't living a sacramental life, and here they are demanding. Now, I am in charge of marriage at my parish, as well as infant baptism, as well as First Holy Communion and Confession, so I know exactly what everything in here is talking about. The worst people on the face of the earth to deal with as a parish employee are people who are coming with their kids for sacrament, whether it's marriage or baptism or somewhere in between, and they themselves do not practice. They treat you like they are at a Burger King and you just got their order wrong from day one. Like, they are yelling at you. They belittle you. They say the most horrific things. Now, here's a funny thing. My wife is the interim coordinator of the sacrament, of first sacraments. So I lose my mind when people do that to my wife. Um, One day, a man just, like, screamed and belittled the two women who were running one of our family, um, family penance services. How dare you let adults go? And it it was like one of those things where it got so out of hand. If I was there, I would have called the cops. Like, that's how crazy it is. So when the church talks about baptized unbelievers, what they mean is those who are brought up not in the faith, but in a cultural expression, and that's it, of the faith. So the sacraments become nothing more than cultural milestones that have some vague importance that the people there do not know what it is, and they don't honestly care. So when you talk to people about what is baptism, yeah, They're like, oh, you know, like they become a part of the church, which is true, but that's really all they know. That literally, that is all they know. And they are just there nine times out of ten to make mom or mother-in-law or grandma happy, and it has nothing to do with it. So the International Theological Commission in 1977 wrote that directly on marriage. So taking up the idea, they spent about four or five years um, going through having sub—oh, gosh, this would be so boring. Talk about boring. Having commission meetings and plenary sessions and exploring <laughs> this question. But it, the document that these people produced—and one of my favorite people was on this commission, Father Thomas uh, Wainaty. He's uh, Franciscan. Uh, he's an OFM cap. He's yes. awesome. He's one of the few Franciscan Thomists that are out
1: there. Oh, he's amazing. He was on this back in 1977 or back then? No, no, no. He's on this new one, the new one. Oh, the so new one. Okay, sorry. They
0: drew in the first paragraph they're drawing from what was written before in order to craft this document. Like already in 77, people were talking about this. And so now we have a bunch of new questions that we need To address. And it's really important that we understand this because what happens if you don't have faith and you come for marriage? What happens if you don't have faith and you come for baptism? What happens if you don't have faith and you come for Holy Communion? So what we need to do is radically readdress these things. And so what I had my people do, so I discovered this on accident and just Googling stuff one day, found it, printed it out, and then I have my department called the Department of Evangelization. And the twin pillars of my department is to evangelize everyone that we are responsible for, right? So in our parish boundaries, we are required to evangelize all people and to protect the dignity and power of the sacraments. So when I say Mm. that, um, the idea is the sacraments demand responses, not only a response of faith, which is first and foremost, but also in our subjective disposition when we come forward to receive them. And the church never talks about, or churches, I should say, uh, parishes rarely talk about this. Dioceses rarely talk about this. Typically, when dioceses talk about it, they issue a piece of paper or an email. Like, who's reading that in the lay faithful? Very few. And so it, it falls onto us in actual parish ministry to take up and champion these, the causes of the sacraments. And this involves telling people uh, not no, we don't deny the sacraments to anyone, but we do delay. And uh, mm. we delay until they are ready. And I remember t- sharing this with priests, and they wanted to kill me. <laughs> I mean, like, they were furious. Like, who do you think you are? And I'm like, uh, the the person who is entrusted by the pastor to be his lay associate in order to make sure people are ready to receive it? Like, the, the catechism the Code of Canon Law tells us to do? You know, they because it's really hard to tell people no, especially when congregations are dwindling, right? But my thing is this, if you lower the bar, if you lower mm. the standards, they view it less as a lesser thing, right? This is, this is human nature. If you give a high quality item away for free or you give a high quality item, make people pay for it, often people will value the thing they pay for, even if it's the same thing, more than the free thing. And so we have to realize that by raising the standards, you raise it in people's minds by putting the sacraments, for lack of a better phrase, on a pedestal. All of a sudden you make people say, oh, this is really important. But what we do is we're so scared of pushing people away that we stop protecting the dignity of the sacraments and we just say, come one, come all, look how inclusive I am. And it's like, yeah, but you're destroying the very thing that you're trying to include people in. And so that's where this line, uh, that's where this document um, walks that fine line between evangelization and the dignity of the
1: sacraments. No, that's really important stuff. And that that last thing you said about human nature, it's just so true. I've noticed that in teaching, I teach at a high school, but you know, there are people who know when I first taught, I tried to make things easy and, you know, yeah. get along with the kids. And if you lower the bar and you try to have like an easy class and be an easygoing teacher, you'll quickly find the high school students, students don't take it as seriously. Yeah. Whereas like the two toughest teachers in the school, like a math teacher has been teaching for like 40 years. This guy's tests were like impossible. And this history teacher who knew everything about history his like, would, would grade your essay so hard. You would like work really hard and you get like a C plus on the essay the students took those classes so seriously and they really appreciated them for that high bar so i think that's that's definitely a good piece just on the you know thinking about it naturally obviously there's super nature involved here but just on the natural realm natural yeah. human nature you lower the bar; people are going to take it less seriously. So that that's a great point. I do want to ask you about the foundation of the sacraments in a second, but let's just go one more thing in the opening section because yes. the document's huge. And I, I, I was, I, like I said before, I thought it was boring or it's going to be weird. No, when I was reading this thing, I'm going to link for it for the listeners. I actually got excited because I'm like, wow, this is a Catholic document. Like, I feel like I'm just reading the faith. I'm like, this is the faith yeah. right here, and like, you're going to like it when you read this. But in section one point two. They're you know, talking about some of the issues you brought up, and they discussed, quote-unquote, distortions of faith, and then they use this other term, pastoral failures. They're kind of going through you know, different issues in the setting of the scene. Can you expand on what they were talking about with distortions of faith and pastoral failures, and why are they relevant to the topic?
0: Yeah, so when we talk about distortions of the faith, they first want to talk about the social phenomena that is making it difficult to believe, right? So you have atheism and how it relativizes all all religions, right? So and not just all religions are the same, but also what religion in general can offer humanity, right? Um, someone like Jordan Peterson is like, honestly, in the secular world, the only voice that is championing a religious view. I mean, you got people like Bishop Aaron and whatnot that have a a public intellectual status about them, but no one compared to Jordan Peterson, right? And his view is that, that religious outlook is a thing. You know, it is a thing. It is a source of knowledge. It is a way of looking at the world that ought to be taken seriously, as well as the scientific outlook, that they're not in competition with each other. So, but the rationalist kind of mind, the rationalist mind of today views it that way, especially through atheism. And then you have secularism, which secularism is interesting because it denies that part of faith that is most essential into a catholic uh, a catholic understanding which is faith is always public it is always mm. shared and it is always communal in character it's the church's faith right it's not just me and jesus it's the church's faith and i'm a part of the church but the secularism denies the presence of religion in general the church in particular In the public sphere, but that also means in the way we live our lives publicly, politically, socially. So it tends to reduce the value and impact of religion um, shockingly uh, a lot. (laughs) So what ends up happening is you have it all relying on parents and within the home. And then when that's not happening because it's getting chipped away in school, it's getting chipped away here, there, and everywhere, um, you have a lot of problems. Then you also have the technocratic paradigm that just views uh, things of value as technological progress. And so things like relationships end up getting denied and the faith, real, uh, believing in God is dialogical. That's a word that comes up about about a trillion times in this document, dialogical. It, it reduces faith to emotion and subjectivity and so that means that people when they talk about having a strong faith really it just means i really 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 am emotional about this um you have a culture of scientism that we've you know i'm sure you've explored ad nauseum where the idea of scientism is you know you can't put god under a microscope therefore it is not a realm of true knowledge and so it gets reduced again to the realm of just personal belief personal whatever um and also, the funny thing is, it, it it looks at things like the creed, the objectivity of the creed is the phrase they say, and the stipulation of conditions for the celebration of sacraments. I love that phrase, because that's where I think the crisis within the church is. The stipulation of conditions for the celebration of the sacraments, it attacks that as something that's coercive of freedom, and uh, especially the freedom of one's conscience. No, I have every right to receive the sacrament of matrimony the way I want. I want to have, you know... Um, you know, some pop song playing while we get married. I want to do all the things that you see on Pinterest and Etsy and blah, blah, blah for my wedding. It's like, no, we bring the Paschal mystery that life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ into the middle of the rite of matrimony. And people mm. don't want to do that. Right. So you have these things, but then on the other hand, you have the pastoral failures and these are really important. It's talked about in uh, paragraph eight of the document pastoral failures uh, in the post Vatican two period. It says, I'm going to quote right here. Thus, the pastoral approach of evangelization has sometimes been understood as if it did not include the uh, did not include sacramental pastoral care, thus losing the balance between the Word of God, evangelization, and the sacraments. And let me tell you, this is and every knee shall bow. This is a reoccurring theme in our show that you have um, the people who understand the preaching of the gospel, the charism,a solely through um, non denominational American Christianity. Right? I'm, I'm going to preach. You know, God loves you, sin destroys your relationship with God, Jesus overcomes your sin, therefore make an individual prayer right now, a sinner's prayer, whatever, and make an act of faith in the risen Lord and you will be saved, or some variation of the four laws. A cup of kerygma. Yeah, and people have adopted that, but what they miss out on in that is the sacramental understanding, which is found in the gospel. I mean, Matthew 28, when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them so you can't be a disciple without baptism teaching them to observe all that i've commanded so you can't just give them the kerygma you also have to give them the catechesis the moral instruction the exhortation we find this in romans right in romans you could say like the introductory chapters of romans romans 1 through 3 1 through 5 are more charismatic. 1 through uh, than 5 through 8 deepen the mystery of the the atoning sacrifice of christ and how it gets applied to our lives Nine through 11 is the most <laughs> most difficult to understand part of the New Testament, but it talks about the church's relationship to Israel. But then you go into 12 to 16, to the end of the document, and it's all moral exhortation. The Christian life is the life of the Paschal mystery made alive in my everyday choices. But what people do, and you've seen this and I've seen this, is people hide in the kerygma because it's all about God's love and God loves you, and they distort mm. the kerygma and they don't connect it to the sacraments. Um, Not to name names, but okay, I'm going to name names. You see this often in not thoroughly Catholic charismatic circles where the fervor of preaching the gospel, and I am a charismatic, so I uh, um, have definitely been guilty of this, but there are some charismatic groups that kind of go astray, and there's a reason why a lot of them became Protestant. Um, But you see this notion of the word being preached, the fervency of devotion and faith completely divorced from, completely Mm -hmm. divorced from the sacramental life. Um, And so what we need to do is we really do need to correct that. A couple other things, and I'll be quicker here, is the primacy of charity in the Christian life uh, does not imply contempt for the sacraments, but some people make it. What do we mean by that? How many times have you heard people when you talk about liturgy, they say, all that stuff doesn't really matter. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's all about loving people. And it's like, it is about loving people, but it's not mutually exclusive to having holy and sacred liturgy than to having yes. valid and licit sacraments, right? And so um, they talk about some pastors have focused their ministry on community building. And I'm like, holy moly, my whole adolescent and teenage years not teenage years, but mostly my adolescence in the 90s and 80s was completely focused on community building. Churches in the round, all of that stuff. And it's that they have neglected the decisive place of the sacraments for that purpose in this endeavor. So we ignore the sacraments for the sake of community. Yet what does St. Paul say? We are one body because we all partake in of the one loaf, right? Come on, people. Uh, in some places, there have been a lack of theological evaluation and pastoral accompaniment of popular Catholic piety. Right. So what does that mean? Well, we have devotions. Awesome. But sometimes those devotions go astray. You can see this in some Marian devotions. You can see this in some saint devotions. You can see this when people are burying St. Joseph statues upside down. It's basically a form of witchcraft. Come on. OK, that's my own thing. Uh, all these all, all these Cajuns around me. They're like, no, what you got to do is pray the St. Joseph Novena, and bury the statue upside down. I was like, or you could put the statue on your mantle and just pray to St. Joseph. Anywho. Um, the idea of we need to have theological accompaniment <laughs> with the, and evaluation of not just that, but also Catholic hymns. The USCCB, um, their office of doctrine, just smashed 1,500 hymns that are found in Catholic, quote-unquote, Catholic prayer books and hymnals that have heterodox Uh, and heretical opinions expressed in the songs and you're like what the heck so so again here's the reciprocity reciprocity it's such a big word uh between faith and the sacraments being failed i'm in the mass and i'm singing heresy or heterodox opinions or things that aren't clear they're muddled and the problem with that is it's educating me at the level of my desires it's pre-rational when i'm singing these songs so these things need to be looked at lastly um I love this phrase. Finally, many Catholics have come to the idea that the substance of the faith lies in living the gospel, absolutely, despising the ritual as alien to the heart of the gospel, and consequently ignoring that the sacraments impel and strengthen the intense living of the gospel itself. And then they use the fourfold formula, martyria, martyrdom, lived witness, liturgia, diaconia, service, and koinonia, community. Mm. These are the four things, witness, liturgy, or worship, service the diaconia and koinonia community these four things if you maintain them all mutually strengthen the intensity of one's individual faith and the faith of the church right but we have a a hatred for ritualism and other things and we just got to back up we we got we got to reboot how we're doing the sacraments Uh,
1: this is okay ton of ton of great stuff there you could do the whole
0: show on just that part right
1: well well, yeah we honestly couldn't i'm glad you spelled out some of those errors but it's totally prevalent and i like that uh, well, the first time I had you on, we were talking about taking Jesus seriously. Yeah, that was like the first. I feel like this this show might, title might have to be taking the sacraments seriously. Yeah, and and all that that entails. But you're so right that when you have a truncated charisma, people kind of get confused or a dis, they get disconnected in their understanding of the faith. And then in particular, I see this with the young people and getting confirmation and such. Then because they have the truncated charisma, like, okay, God just like loves you. And then it's like a disconnected faith. And it's like, oh yeah. And you have to follow all these rules. It's like, it doesn't all add up and integrate properly. And then they're just like, well, well, wait a minute. If it's just like, that he loves me, and then there's all these rules over here. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not really seeing it. It did, and yeah. I don't like it. So you know what? If you really make me follow the rules, then I'm just not going to do it. Or you know, just let us go. You know, you don't actually have to follow the rules, and it just opens the door for all those issues. So I think that's a a good point to raise. I do want to ask a foundational question though, just to really help you articulate which I I know you love to do and you're good at it. The biblical foundation of this, the salvi- salvation history foundation for this of why we should be taking sacraments seriously because a lot of non-catholic Christians are going to object. Well, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. Our faith is about faith in Christ and a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what really counts. That's the core. So you know, we Catholics, they argue, we take this beautiful life of faith and this personal relationship, and we add all this ritualistic stuff on top of it. We just lather it on, we layer it on, these rituals, and they pollute the simple truth that we're saved by faith. So in light of that, um, how how, and why should Christians value the sacraments? yeah.
0: You know the way that um, question gets filtered to me here in Texas, um, you'll buckle the Bible belt, right? Uh, I do a lot of prison ministry, and I did my first retreat. I did not want to do prison ministry. I was voluntold, and uh, I'm there in the prison, and I'm running a small group, and I kept getting a tap on my shoulder from other small group leaders, and they're like, "Hey, Mike, could you come over here? To this guy's asking a question about like how someone gets canonized. Can you?" talk over someone's talking about the pope and how he's like a god or something can you come over here and talk about mary and why you worship her and uh the eucharist and why it's you know just a symbol and like all this so i kept going and pulled away from my group so finally we just decided to do these four impromptu um question and answers and the first two they didn't ask questions they yelled and told me questions right And if I could, um, so I, and it was so fun for me. Like, I love that stuff that we, uh, I felt like a little Thomas Aquinas, a little disputed
1: questions, right. That we did, uh, (laughs) you were doing, oh man, what do they call that though? It's the disputed question, but there's like a particular one. Like sometimes it's like De Veritate or De Potencia where it's like on a specific topic, like disputed questions on truth, disputed questions on power. But I'm totally blanking. There's one where it's just like a barrage of assorted questions um i'll think of the name in a second but that's kind of like what you were getting yeah and
0: thomas of all of those peter kraft talks about i think in the suma the suma he he talks about how thomas loved that most of all the complete open-ended ones but um so what they would do – and so I did five of these retreats in the prison. Uh, I go to a maximum security men's prison for violent offenders, right? So some of these guys are in there for triple life sentences and all this stuff. So
1: quad-liberal. Sorry, I just thought of it. It's the quad-liberal question. It questions. is, yes, yes, Those yes. are the random ones. Anyway, yeah. go uh, back to prison
0: mission. <laughs> At first I thought you were talking about the inmates, and I'm like, no, they're, I, don't, I think they're all former gang members. Um, <laughs> no, and, so, and they are. Uh, but they, i met some of the most incredible men in, in that – in that prison but the thing that would happen every single time in the five retreats that i've done is that you would essentially you could gather up and reduce all of the questions to one question i get who jesus is and what he did for me the cross the resurrection the preaching the teaching the healings all that stuff i get jesus i get having faith in jesus confess with my lips believe in my heart i get that what I don't get is why Jesus said it is finished and you Catholics add to the finished saving work of Jesus Christ with the papacy and Marian devotion, the communion of saints and all this stuff, right? So what I began doing was I, at first I would spit out the, the standard apologetic lines like, well, this is where baptism is important and blah, 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 blah. And this is where communion is important. Have you ever read John chapter six? And you start going through this. But then I realized that what I wasn't speaking to was actually the foundational kind of meta narrative that these people are yes. inhabiting and that to be honest most Catholics inhabit because we live in America and, and or in the West or whatever. And what I ended up seeing was this lack of truly biblical and you know me, I'm obsessed with salvation history, this biblical vision grounded first and foremost in who Jesus is in his pre-existent state, right? Before he became incarnate, Jesus is the logos, the word, the rationality, intelligibility, right? He is that through which the Father created everything. In the beginning was the word, and then God said, let there be light. So God fashioned the whole universe through the Father fashioned the universe through the word with the Holy Spirit. And this is important for us to understand because the world, the creation itself is, number one, it is rational, it is knowable. God is knowable as a creator of creation. So that means in Romans chapter 1 where St. Paul says what can be known about God is evident to them through his works, right? We can know essentially, you know, different translations mm-hmm. kind of translate this differently, but they'll say, namely, his eternal power and deity; that he is God, and that he is all powerful, or, or the creator. We can reason from the works back to the worker of the works that is a the creator. Then this is the famous St. Thomas Five Ways. This is a understanding that there is a power that is not in the world, who is over and uh, outside of this world or this universe. And so the importance of this for us to understand is that when God chose to create us, he created us as part of creation, and we are visible, material, corporeal beings as well as spiritual beings. So to understand the gospel, we have to understand creation. To understand, because he is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. So, the word of Genesis 1, John in his great prologue is explicitly connecting Genesis and creation to Jesus. And then you look at the beautiful understanding of creation throughout Judaism. Right. were they actually, to a point in their in their history, negate a an enduring spiritual presence of the individual human person. Right. For many of them, uh, through much of Jewish or Israelite history, the faith was not con- they did not conceive of anything like heaven like we do today. We kind of impose that back on there. But that was really a later development um, pre first century, but a later development within Judaism in the Book of Wisdom. Um, uh we talks about that God doesn't cast off a soul at at the moment of death. But before that, it's this vague, shadowy world called Sheol, where the shades live and all this stuff. And uh, you know, you have psalms that say, Can do the shades give you praise, O Lord, right? And King David is saying this, and it's like, yeah, so keep preserve me in life, and I will keep giving you praise. Um, so this understanding that we need to have of the word being present in and through creation and creation itself speaking to us about God is absolutely important for us understanding the absolute incredible dignity that Christ paid to creation through his incarnation, right? So we take the Jewish understanding of creation of a God-breathed thing, this moment in human history or in in the, the very thing that gave us history, right? And then Jesus, God himself, enters into the human story, enters into creation, and taking on a human nature, the church says, in a certain sense, united himself with every human, right? So the dignity of the sacramental economy is grounded in first how God made all things and the creation that he makes is a manifestation of his knowledge and power, and how Christ is the fullness of that self disclosure of God through creation. Think about that. He discloses himself mm. in his fullness by becoming one of us. That's where we first now know of the Trinity. God discloses his own inner life through the incarnation of Jesus. But his divine power was working through creation the whole time. So think about um, Moses and the liberation and exodus of Israelites from Egypt, the 10 plagues. Why didn't God just kill the, uh, the Egyptians and deliver Israel? Why did he work through a covenant mediator? Right, He worked through a mediator. Why did that covenant mediator need to have a shepherd's staff? Why, why is there a whole section in uh, Exodus, I think it's chapter 3 or 4, where it's called Aaron's Rod as the subheading, and it's all about Aaron, which I giggle every time. Uh, it's all about Aaron having the shepherd's staff as a, as a sign of his authority. That God is working through. Why did he have to strike the Nile? Why couldn't God just turn it into blood? Why did he have to do all these things? Take pitchers of water and pour it out. Why Why do they, you know, all over and over and over again. God discloses himself and his power through creation. Right? Through the mediation of creation. Why? Because we are creatures. Not because he needs to. He didn't need Moses. We all acknowledge this. He doesn't need Moses in order to save Israel. But he chose to. He didn't need Mary, nor her yes, for God can raise up stones, uh, children of Abraham out of these very stones, St. John the Baptist says. Okay, so we know that. And yet, why did God choose to go through Mary? Why did God choose to anoint Joseph to be the foster father of Christ so that he could be born of the house of David? Why does being born of the house of David matter? The genealogy, Matthew and Luke have genealogies. Why does the human, like when we talk about the sacraments, we're not just talking about these seven things. We are talking about a mode of relating to God because it's how God relates to us. It is essentially a dialogue. So the short answer is when someone says, why do you add to the saving work? We save the sacraments are the manifestation and demonstration of that saving work. We are not working to earn. We are receptive, just like the word of truth spoken to us when the kerygma was proclaimed, right? So when, when someone says, well, why do you have the pope? I'll say for the exact same reason why St. Paul uh, blasted the, the, the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and following so that we would know that we would not have another gospel that we would succumb to, that we would have one gospel. And all the bishops united to the pope, we know that God's going to protect him from pronouncing error in faith and morals, right? Why does that matter? So that we know the God that we're following. Why do you have baptism? So that someone may know, not in the vagaries of, well, did I really truly believe? But yes, I am now a Christian, right? So how many people have told the story of, you know, me and my best friend, we we went to church camp. We received Christ in our heart as our Lord and Savior. We got saved on you know Thursday night. Uh, we lived the Christian life our senior year of high school. Then we both went to the same college, kind of a party school. And then he never has been to church again. You go to your pastor in crisis. Am I saved? What about my friend? Well, your friend, maybe he never really believed to begin with. So many young Protestants have a crisis of faith because they hear their pastor say those words. Now, uh, you know, if Dr. Gavin uh, Ortland is listening to this episode, he might have uh, mm-hmm. a, a better phrase. You know, a lot of pastors will say, well, maybe he's just going through something. He might still be saved, but blah, blah, blah. But the problem is it throws so many young people into crisis mode because they wonder if they are saved. And to the Catholic, we say, do you believe in the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Can you say the creed? Yes. Okay. Have you been baptized? Yes. Guess what? You're saved. Now, are you aware of mortal sin? No. Guess what? You haven't lost your salvation. If you're aware of it, then we go to confession. So we know we are forgiven, even if we return to the same sin. We know we can walk out of there because we hear with human ears, right? We see with our eyes when the priest gives us the absolution. I absolve you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We can receive these things because the sacraments are utterly human, but Christ became human. So that means they are now charged with divine power. Oh. Sorry for the sermon. I just went, that was a total sermon. I apologize.
1: (laughs) No, that was such a, that's so good though, because it's such a better framing than oh, I have my three verses here for each of the sacraments, and I'm just going to show you where they're found in the Bible. No, but that gets at the heart of it. Not that the verses are bad. Like, of course, we can talk about that. But that gets at the heart of the question. I have Jesus. Why do I need all this extra stuff? And just kind of walking them through that, that we're part of creation. God gave the dignity to creation, especially through the incarnation, and he's always disclosed himself to us through these physical signs and manifestations, and He works through the covenant mediators and created stuff, and so it's not surprising we say a sacrament is a um, we say a sacrament is a physical sign instituted by Christ to give grace. It's not just that it, like it's this thing out of nowhere. It's this. Way that was being done partially all along, but now more fully in the new covenant. I like what you said there. I was kind of, I wish I had it written down even more, but I'm going to listen back. The sacrament, sacraments, the sacramental mode of relating to God according to the way that he made us to relate to him. So I, I just love this framing first and then go talk about some Bible verses if you want, but this is why it's not just layers on the cake. It's baked into creation itself, but go ahead. You wanted to add something there.
0: Yeah, well, I would just say, you know, one of the reasons why um, Protestants have a very um, nervous approach when it comes to the sacraments, even using the word sacrament, especially after kind of like the Baptist turn of the Protestant Reformation, when it goes Baptist in the 1600s, you begin to manifest an anti-sacramental strain in the economy. You don't really have that with Luther and Calvin and the Reformed Church and the Lutheran churches and in the Anglican Reformation Um, But you do have that kind of after that when the Anabaptists and and all this stuff kind of starts commingling with Reformed theology. And so one of the interesting things about the sacramental worldview that I walk Protestants through is the rite of confirmation. Mm. And it's so funny. I say, okay, now you're hesitant because you believe this is a form of works righteousness, I'm doing this thing to earn God's grace. I got to go and receive Holy Communion or go to confession. I'm earning it or receive confirmation. And so I say, so all I want you to do is just read the rite of confirmation and what people, quote-unquote, earn to receive the sacrament of confirmation. Two amens and a one and with your spirit. That's it. Like, that's all they, they, quote-unquote, do. Because when you start to look at the sacraments – every one of them from infant baptism to your you know uh, anointing of the sick last rites viaticum all of that stuff it is all predicated not on you earning or doing but you receiving just like faith. If you receive the word of truth into your heart and into your mind and you desire to have faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, then what you do is you make an act of faith as a response, a it's recept- a form of receptivity to the grace of the gospel. Well, what is the sacraments? It's the exact same thing. It's our receptivity to the gospel. And so when you look at the confirmation, right, you have the church— praying for this individual, long prayers, some short prayers. Of course, in the Novus Ordo, you always see in these or similar words, which is so infuriating and funny. Uh, how similar do they have to be? Anywho, so <laughs> you go through and they pray. they do the laying on of hands. They pray over them. They, they invoke their baptismal dignity, especially if they're Protestants becoming Catholic. There's a great reminder of our shared baptism, all of this stuff. And then they do the laying on of hands where they end with an amen. And then they go and they anoint them. You know, They say the name, usually a saint name, uh, Francis, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace be with you and with your spirit. And they're confirmed. I said it is a posture of receptivity, not of earning, right? Your merit, quote unquote, is that you showed up and that you believe, right? And so this is the part that so many people need to understand is if I Mm. present myself for a sacrament with zero belief, objectively, I have received the sacrament. Subjectively, there is no grace given right? Objectively, if I go and receive the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist in the state of mortal sin, I have, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 27 to 29, eaten and drinking judgment upon myself because I've received in an unworthy manner. So St. Paul makes it very clear. There is a way to receive the Eucharist in a worthy manner, that is by discerning the body and blood of Jesus Christ. If I know this is Jesus, that's an act of faith. I don't come to the Eucharist if I haven't made an act of faith. And yet, we see tons of Catholics who come to the Eucharist without an act of faith. So, I always tell people objectively, this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Every particle, every crumb, every drop is the total Christ, right? But subjectively, you might, the grace you receive might be the size of a thimble, might be the size of a bucket. And I always use that as an analogy be bucket people, right? But it also <coughs> might be an actual mortal sin, a sin of sacrilege. If you come forward undisposed in an unworthy manner, and you come forward and you present yourself and you don't have faith that that's Jesus. You think it's just a symbol or, you know, at best, you deny its reality. You're just doing this because everyone's up there. One man said, uh, the deacon made me and my wife swallow our gum. How dare he? It's just a cracker. I don't see what all the problem is about. Now, it turns out this guy wasn't Catholic, but his wife was Catholic. And it's like, what what is going on here? You know, and uh, so this is the mentality that I try to help people overcome. It's like the hemorrhaging woman. So the church, when you use a classical definition, right, an outward sign instituted by Christ that imparts um, divine grace or inward grace, the idea of the sacrament have an outward sign. That's a human component. That's what we call sacrament. And the inward grace is the divine component, grace, right? That's what we call the mysteries. In the Eastern church, they call them the mysteries. In the Western church, we call them the sacrament, sacramentum, um, comes from the word basically to mean a sacred oath, which is very much tied to the Hebrew understanding of covenants is swearing sacred oaths, and so they're like seven oaths that we swear to God in in our reception of the sacraments. but this understanding of coming forward and and being united oftentimes we we tend to overvaluate the um, or, or over focus on the objective character in mm. in teaching this, and we kind of downplay the subjective component. And so that's where our Protestant brothers and sisters in their criticism is absolutely true. If we do not foster a healthy faith in the kerygma, a kerygmatic proclamation, people will always receive the Eucharist in a deformed manner, right? So if this really is Jesus who's really given us his body, blood, soul, and divinity, if it really is a sacrificial memorial of his death on the cross— then I need to approach everything accordingly. And the priest will be judged by Jesus Christ if he approached celebrating the mass accordingly. So there's a lot Mm. that goes into this. There is a lot. See, that's why the church has all the rules and the regulations and the general instruction on the Roman Missal, because how we celebrate matters, because matter matters. There are powers that go forth from the body of Christ. So that was, let me finish that thought. It was, um, so you gave the outward sign instituted by Christ and imparts inward grace with a physical sign. The catechism uses that, but it also uses this phrase, the efficacious signs, efficacious signs. Efficacious means it it actually does the thing it signifies. So a stop sign is not efficacious. I blew through a stop sign on my driver's ed test, failed the driver's ed test, because just because there's a stop sign there doesn't mean a car is going to stop, right? I saw a teenager on her cell phone roll right through a red light and just got T-boned and it was horrific. Right about three feet, three cars ahead of me um, last week. That red light did not stop her. It's a sign, but it's not efficacious. An umpire calling safer out with the gesture that accompanies it—that's an efficacious sign. Imagine if a guy slid into home plate while the catcher tagged him, and the whole place goes silent for the you know the run, and he just yells and he does a weird thing, he like shakes his hand in a weird way and goes blah 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 blah. And you're like, what, what? What does that mean? Blah 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 blah. Well, what it means is the outward sign is not communicating anything, so everyone's still waiting for some some ruling to be made. So what happens if we take the baptismal waters and we use grape juice, right? What happens if we take the Eucharist and we put oats and raisins and, uh, you know, you make it out of a Nella wafer or whatever horrible liturgical abuse that's happened? Well, it's not the Eucharist. What happens if you have a bride and a groom and they do their own vows and their own vows have nothing in common with the, the church's matrimonial or marital consents? It's not a marriage. Well, what happens if you do all of the things correctly but inwardly, subjectively, you deny by faith you're a baptized non-believer? Well, the church would say that though the rites themselves were performed, you have created an obstacle to reception of those graces in your own lives. And so right now, mm-hmm. the, the Vatican has to understand. Pope Francis talked about it. Pope JP II has talked about it. Um, Pope Benedict talked about it. But what is the status of marriage when people don't have faith but they come for the sacraments? You know, and there's a whole subsection in the reciprocity on faith and the sacraments and the sacramental economy. On just that issue, as well as on baptism and on first yeah. communion. Yeah.
1: Can we go into that in a minute? Yeah. I just wanted to kind of wrap up because that was a lot of stuff there, but really good stuff. Because what I detected then when you started explaining that is there, and then we got into some other things, but there <laughs> was, really... I'm sorry. so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I usually try to like keep track of like a little bit of an outline of what they say, but you always give me so much. It's like <laughs> incredible stuff. But we started with the, the objection from non-Catholics that the sacraments are extra. That's like one set of objections is that they're extra stuff. Yeah. And the way of framing how we answer that is to talk about how not only is it not extra, it's the mode through which God has always communicated with his creation. And so that's kind of what we went into that framing. But then there's a secondary objection that it's like these two E's, maybe have two E's to remember them. It's extra, or it's earning. That's like the second type of objection is that it's earning. Oh, you're doing all this stuff because you're trying to earn it. And for that, you talk about the right of confirmation and leaning heavily upon the idea that we are, um, through faith, we are passive. Yes, we have to make an act of faith, but we are receiving, we're always receiving God's grace passively. It's not that, you know, like you said, we say an amen, an amen, and then what was the third thing? Two amens and a what? And a uh, in the, uh, with your spirit, right? And with your spirit, yeah. and like that, that's like, that's all you do, but it's really the person's inner act of faith that brings them there, that says those amens, and through that, it's, 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 if they were earning, it's not really plausible that they're, they're doing much to earn anything, because they don't really do much. It's more of a posture of receptivity, as you said, and then, after that, you got into the distinction, which is really helpful between objective and subjective, because sometimes to grant a point to our Protestant, you know, our, our friends, we can overplay the objective component and say like, oh, we got all these great objective sacraments, but there, there's an issue where, you know, if there's impediments and in, in how they're being celebrated and how they're being received, then the grace is not going to be flowing, the, the spigot, so to speak. So those are just three of the big things that I think we talked about there. I wanted to give you a, a last kind of catch-all, though, if you wanted to highlight anything else from the document I do. that we didn't get into before we get into the marriage thing, but go ahead.
0: Yeah, I do. And I'm going to be honest with you. I was shocked that you didn't want to talk about this you went for paragraphs seven and eight uh but not four and five i thought you would have loved four and five especially so uh what they do in talking about why is this reciprocity, oh yeah let's go back to that yes. yeah go ahead. all the way in the beginning why is this reciprocity between faith and the sacraments in crisis and they highlight a handful of major things and the first one is nominalism nominalism mm. is a denial between the basically human reason and objective reality or being It is nominalism, for those of you who don't know, is a name, nomen, that we give the essences of things, but the essences of things aren't really there, all right? So it kind of traces back to William of Ockham, who essentially says that we're just naming things with these essences, but really all that exists are the individual things themselves. And so it's an anti-metaphysical dualism that has creeped into modernity. Modernity is, the via moderna understood by Thomas for centuries, is the nominalism, Right, It is the Via Moderna. In um, Etienne Jolson's wonderful book on the history of medieval philosophy, The I think it's the last chapter of the book or the last section of the book. It's just called Via Moderna. And it talks about how nominalism can be traced through a lot of things. And one of those reasons for it is the rise of Islam and its heavy influence on Europe, which ultimately gives birth to the divine right of kings, which was not an early medieval thing. It was a later medieval thing. Uh, more of a, a renaissance dev- um, development. But You have this understanding with nominalism comes voluntarism, which is an assertion of the will. The will is the final thing, not reason. Now, why is that important? Well, if human concepts are like the sacraments are no longer connected to the divine logos, that means they are merely human constructions, right? It's a social construct, right? And that's all it is. If it's a social construct, then guess what? We can rip it all apart guess what the the connection between personal act of faith and the content Mm. of faith now are completely separate and they have this pithy little phrase where he says in short and as a decisive aspect when the capacity of reason to know the truth of being is denied the inability to gain access to know god's truth is being implied they rhymed it thank you father thomas why i love it i love it So we have to understand nominalism is kind of the root of all of these things. The other thing would be scientific and technological knowledge as two different – as a category of knowledge that tries to usurp everything. Um, Again, when you look at literature, it's a different – this is Bishop Barron's big thing. You can study Shakespeare. Are you going to say that's not true? Is Shakespeare not communicating truth even though it's not scientific? No. In fact, they're human truths that are probably more important – than scientific truths. Yes, I said it, more important um, it's in certain contexts, right? And then finally, this is the part that I would highlight, and this is um, from paragraph six. This is where I have found where direct bearing on my sacramental life, the celebration of liturgy, the liturgy wars going on, the document contrasts two modes of viewing signs and symbols. Um, mm. So when you become a rationalist, what is the value of a sign and symbol? The value of a sign is reduced to just its cognitive context, right? So when you look at a flag, it's reduced to, oh, the stars and bars represent this. You know, it's America. Yeah, it stands in for it. When we look at a flag, this is what we think of, right? We reduce it just to its uh, cognitive value, and that is not heavily weighted. Oh, yeah, I know what that is. It's, it's, you know, this is men's room. Okay, whatever. I know what that sign means. Right, but uh, then there's the postmodern, and the postmodern is a rejection of the cognitive value in favor of what we call the performative value, how it moves you to action, and so the the postmodern emphasis is always on the emotional impact of the signs themselves, right? So what they want to do is they want to over. Um, overemphasize the subjective the the modernist reduces dis, completely disregards the subjective and just focuses on the cognitive thing but for it to be a truly catholic sign all of the sacraments are performative as well as cognitive that is they transmit truth and they move us to action or action is being done to us. The, the word liturgy is a, a work done on behalf of the people. And this is God's mighty works being proclaimed to us, being, having them be made present for us. So if I deny that as a category, then guess what's going to happen to my, uh, my belief in the sacraments? It's gone. Or I'm going to view it strictly through the lens of emotivism. I'm going to reduce everything to their emotional impact. I mean, one of my favorite Protestant pastors is Andy Stanley, and in his book Communicating for a Change, he talks about everything I do, especially in the beginning, the common ground that I appeal to is to everyone's emotions because we all have emotions, so I want to appeal there and start there. Now, he might bring up performative truth and all this stuff, but you see this thread run throughout modern Christianity, especially in Catholic liturgies, right? When you have a funeral mass, my husband's favorite song was... You know, living on a prayer. So therefore, during the eulogy, which is during the liturgy, which is, you know, I want this song played. And it's like, no, number one, there's no eulogy. I'm not here to canonize your spouse. He you (laughs) you go do that in the reception afterwards. There's none of that. Right. But that creeps in because it's so subjectively satisfying. Right. That the sign value becomes emotional impact, basically. And that, so, from those things—from nominalism, from the rationalist modernity, from the scientific um, worldview—you have atheism, secularism, the technocratic paradigm, the emotional reduction of faith, the culture of scientism, and the coercion of viewing oh. ritualism as a coercion of freedom. So, from those Ooh. three, you have all these other things that we talked about in the beginning. And then you see how priests in the pastoral failures begin to manifest that. We're like, no, we're going to focus on community. We're going to love each other. Everyone, come forward. I'm going to bless you with a guitar. I'm going to do all this ridiculous stuff because we're trying to make the liturgy more human. And in making it more human, we make it less liturgy. That's the thing, is the sacraments preserve the human element so that the divine can be transmitted. It's not the other way around, but that's what we do when we have a man-centric liturgy. Mm. It's I'm giving God my opinion instead of I'm entering into the incarnate love of the Son for the Mm. Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. I'm done.
1: (laughs) No, it's amazing. Every time I I peruse this document on multiple occasions, but I honestly, I just need to read it straight through because I keep finding like there's so many golden nuggets that you can find there in those two issues of. Nominalism on the one hand And then a distortion of how we understand Symbols on the other is big And I just wanted to say uh, Just as a possible optimistic note For the symbol thing going forward As Let's just say like with the younger generations As like, you know, their understanding Of these things are just so distorted And their whole experience being given Smartphones at such a young age is just so Different from anything that anyone's ever had yeah. On an optimistic note Ancient and sacred rituals, like the sacraments, because they look, they're going to look, the juxtaposition, the contrast, they're going to look so different from anything else in this kid's life that when they're done right, I think you're going to get what Pope Benedict Sixteenth was talking about, like what those young people have always been craving. Like he, w- he would just tell them to seek Eucharistic adoration, like the, 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 um, The happiness that you seek, he has like some great quotes that I can't remember off the top of my head, but the real richness in life that they're after, that they try to find through whatever the world throws at them, can be found in Jesus Christ. And so at least as an optimistic note, when things inside the church look so different from everything else in the world, it has that cool, novel aspect of and a drawing power and and that's why it's so silly to try to make them look like the world because then we miss out on that drawing power we miss out on that extra power that like oh we're not just doing what oh we you know we do on friday night after my baseball team we go out for pizza and ice cream we're doing something different here we're like we're on holy ground and so at least on an optimistic note i think as the weirder we look Mm -hmm the more we can stand out. Yeah. I don't know what you think about that. Well,
0: you know, Kierkegaard came up with this analogy um, of, and and it's had sway. Cardinal Ratzinger brings it up in the spirit of the liturgy or introduction to Christianity. I can't remember which one, but um, he says, okay, so imagine in in Denmark in the Renaissance, there's a fire at a circus, a circus on the outskirts of a small farming town. Fire starts. It's raging out of control. They send the clown in to go get the people and have them help put out the fire. The clown goes out there, and the clown is dressed in a silly, you know, clown outfit and the more he tries to get people to come to the circus and put out the fire the more they laugh and think he's just selling them something like come to the circus and the more adamant he is the more they laugh and take him less seriously right and so what ends up happening is the surra- the town is surrounded by fire and everyone dies right and kierkegaard said the church needs to learn that in wearing our medieval garb obviously kierkegaard was not a, a catholic but in wearing the medieval garb we cannot speak to modern man in modern man, the more we talk about this in our medieval garb, the more the world laughs at us and takes us less and less seriously. Pope Francis or Pope um, Benedict, and when he was Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, takes this theme up and explores it, saying, "Yes, but what if, in stripping of ourselves of the medieval garb, so that modern man can hear us, we we strip something essential?" And one of the problems that I think we don't understand when it comes to saving souls in this modern world. Is the medieval, like you said, on just a human level, the elements of Catholicism that make it uh, that make it stand out in a world of instant gratification, all this stuff, will shine out more brightly because it's so stark in contrast with the world. And it is a failure in just Mission 101 when we ape the world. The, the idea of aping the world in our liturgies and in our youth groups and whatever is because we want to... Build a bridge, right? I'm building this bridge, so we're going to use some secular songs or religious songs with secular beats to it, or whatever, um, in order to build a bridge into catechetical worship. But then the or liturgical worship. But then the question becomes: But do we? Do we take them deeper, or are we still singing the same secular song? Because but so now what we've done is since the 1970s, we've only done the folk and the rock and all that stuff, and that's where we put all of our attention on there, so that the people are not formed in. The difficult things of the church, they are, you know, the things that take effort, like learning Gregorian chant, learning Latin, doing whatever, um, that, that like no one even knows about the antiphons of the season or the day or the whatever. And we have completely lost track of that because we, we don't sing the mass. We sing songs at mass. We do the sandwich. We sing the beginning song, the end song, and the communion songs in the middle. And that is deadly dangerous to faith because what we're trying Mm. to do is appeal to the world, but we're not here to take – if it's truly a bridge, it has to go somewhere. But it's as if we're bringing people on a bridge and saying, just stay here, you're fine, and we can't do that. We cannot do that because we're limiting the sign value of the sacraments and of the liturgy, and that's really where – priests and so of all the priests listening you have to double down on the general instruction on the roman Missal. you have to listen when they call for antiphons whether it's seasonal or of the day do those antiphons because the eight people in your congregation praying the liturgy of the hours will now experience the mass and the liturgy of hours as an extension of the divine worship of god right and then you'll get more people interested in both Right, So mm. what we want to do is foster a, a truly Catholic sacramentality. Right, That's this reciprocity between faith and the sacraments. This is the dialogue between a soul and God, and we're shoving the world in between. People think that by building this bridge, we're pulling souls into heaven, but no, we're not. We're just making the church look more like the world. And in making mm. the church look more like the world, just like you said— It ceases to stand out. It ceases to be, we're denying its attractive character. Now, at the same time, we can also say the things that make the liturgy worthwhile are having a prayer life, knowing how to engage in meditative and contemplative prayer, and that takes work. Contemplative prayer, meditative prayer, mental prayer takes work. You have to be really good at vocal prayer before you begin to do mental prayer, right? And so when we enter into the liturgy, my active participation in the liturgy is not me being an usher. My act of participation in the liturgy is me contemplating the saving word of Jesus Christ prophetically proclaimed and then me receiving my Lord in the Eucharist and then contemplating him there, right? Like one of my favorite days, this church that I go to, the ordinary parish, we have to show up 30 minutes early just to get a seat. So I'm sitting there and I had the most peaceful prayer time for 30 minutes sitting in that church preparing myself for mass. But that takes effort to prepare yourself for mass right? Preparing yourself for mass is actually something you do on Saturday night. Like the prayers you say before you go to bed, doing liturgy, the hours in the morning is a help. Um, There's a lot of things there. And so you're right, man, like we're losing. Here's a funny thing. We put screens in our church, the church that I work at. And the first thing that shocked our our previous pastor was how many young people complained. And their number one comment was, my life is filled with screens. How come the church can't be the one place where that's not there? So because it's not like the world, it becomes very difficult for people to enter into it, but also because it's not like the world, that maintains its attractive quality. So it is a a thin line that we have to walk.
1: Yes. I would just ask
0: that we don't sacrifice the liturgy in order to do that. The bridge should end at the liturgy. Third place events, your home, praise and worship, yes, bring people into the sacred liturgy through those other things
1: absolutely absolutely do, do you have five or ten minutes to get into this one one question about the uh marriage
0: can i tell you can i tell you a secret can I tell you a secret right yes. now right now we just kicked off vacation bible school and it goes from nine to noon i've been here since seven thirty. it is insane so brother i will give you all the time you want because i am terrified of <laughs> how w- many people go to that about 600 kids 600 <laughs> oh. kids right 600 k to sixth graders <laughs> and then we have about 200 or 100 volunteers. It is nuts. It is
1: nuts. Oh, it's nuts. I'm so happy you're doing it though. That's oh, amazing. Yeah. It's I, awesome. I, yeah. It's awesome. That's something I would think that Catholics wouldn't do. Like that, that's something like oh, that's something like oh, like evangelicals or other Christians, they're going to Bible schools in yeah. the summer, but not Catholics. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah.
0: Yeah, imagine uh Catholics trying to pray the mass, right? trying to pray the mass and not know scripture when every inch of the mass is just words and phrases clipped from scripture especially mm. the psalms it is it is shocking one of my favorite parts of the ordinary liturgy is when they begin the liturgy of the eucharist they say Christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed and then we respond therefore let us keep the feast Um, And that's a quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's so important to know, like, the context of all this stuff. And I'm like, yes, Christ is our Passover lamb. Therefore, let us keep the feast, which is the mass. And St. Paul goes on to say, not with the, with the sincerity of unleavened, with the, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth and not with the leaven of malice and all that other stuff. And so I just think, Mm. like... Yes, I have to have sincerity and truth in order to approach this feast that is the sac- sacrifice of the lamb. So it's so important. So here in VBS, in uh, I don't know what your parish is like, but our parish, because of COVID, is suffering from an inability of adults, children, teenagers to know how to receive Holy Communion correctly. It's horrible. It is horrible.
1: Oh, just like the physical mechanics yes, of it. Yes. We have a much smaller parish, so I don't know. If, yeah, we don't. I don't know if we it have is, that issue. It's is
0: driving me insane. People are receiving it. They're abusing it. We've had so also there's a rise of demonic activity and anti Roe v Wade protesting. So people are stealing the Eucharist and running out the door with it. Oh, horrible! Yeah, right. It's it's horrific. So the idea is you have to um, you have to commune or receive immediately and consume immediately in front of the minister of Holy Communion. And what people are doing is they're putting in their hands and then they're bolting out the door. We had two people in. Yeah, just literally run. From this, oh, It's so awful. A neighboring parish had their tabernacles stolen, ripped open, all this, or made national news. It's horrific. But what I'm doing in order to restore the sign value is in VBS for our middle schoolers, they are going to learn how to receive Holy Communion on the tongue. Right, So we have all the altar breads going over there, unconsecrated hosts, and they're going to do practice. They're going to practice genuflecting. They're going to practice all this stuff because of the church is a sacred space, then because of the Holy Eucharist in the tabernacle and the sacred action on the altar, that's what makes it holy, not because of the artwork, not because of all that. All that stuff exists for the sake of the presence of God. And so I'm training them, training them how to receive in a worthy manner because what happens if they get crap on their hands and you put the body, blood, soul, and divinity in their hands... Well, you're just saying. And so now our church is ordering communion plates, the patents that go mm-hmm. underneath the hands of the faithful when they're receiving Holy Communion. Why? Because we have dropped more hosts because of COVID and mass and all this stuff in right. the last two years, in the last 25 years of my church's history. So, but what does it say when, when we say we won't even let a single visible crumb particle fall from the Eucharist because that's Christ? I mean, think of just the sign value. We won't let one yes. crumb touch the floor. And so when you have all these things, you're like, okay, we need to be trained again in the sacraments, in reception, in understanding, all of that.
1: And people do notice it, and it adds to the reverence. I will say, like, when our current pastor came, I think it was four years ago now. It's gone by so quick. But one of the first things that he made a point to make sure that we were doing is purifying the vessels after every every time communion. But that it was done— so that like the people would see it as well. Um, like maybe they used to purify the vessels, but it was like quick and not obvious and not something that we would take notice of. But now, like when you see the deacon or the priest actually doing that with the communion cup and with the patent, making sure everything is is taken care of, every particle, and like we're like kneeling and praying until that's all taken care of, it, it kind of adds to that communal reverence. So those little sign things do have value. I wanted to ask you about this question though, because they spent a lot of time on it. The baptized unbelievers, you talked about it at the beginning of the show, in particular with regard to the sacrament of marriage, they spend a lot of time on it. Can you just kind of lay out again, what, are, what is like the, they call it a dubia, so what's the question that they're really trying to to get around, and what are some of the contours of a possible answer to the question that they lay out?
0: Yeah, so um, this comes in part 4.2, a questio dubia, the sacramental quality of a marriage of baptized nonbelievers. Now here's the thing Pope Francis made a stir probably about three years ago when he said um he believes that maybe half of all marriages Catholic marriages are invalid because of a lack of faith and a lot of people you know talked about it I think he said well you know I'm not speaking half literally or whatever but um in my experience bro (laughs) I'm right there with you so in the in the Latin church right in in the west we've always understood what makes uh, a sacrament is three things right the 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 form The prayers that are said, right? The matter has to be valid matter. And then, so valid form, valid matter, and intention, the intention of the minister of the church. So, for instance, in baptism, we always talk about um, anyone can baptize. An atheist can baptize as long as they use water, say, I baptize you in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what's the third thing? They must intend what the church intends by baptism. So, if they say, this is stupid, all I intend to do is to scrape a little dirt off your face, and they baptize you, you're not baptized right? I had a mom, and this is very practical. I had a mom who baptized their, um, infant who at six weeks had to get open heart surgery, baptized the infant in the sink. And she said, um, I said, how did you do it? And she said, we baptize you in the name of the father, son, Holy spirit. And I said, mm-hmm. that's not a valid baptism. And she said, well, okay, so my kids survive. We're, we want a valid baptism. I said, right. So we'll go and we'll do this in the church. And all this. That doesn't mean that God can't work around this, especially in that case where they didn't know there's ignorance there, but in the very real way, um, They aren't, that kid is not baptized, right? And this is where people, you might have just heard that and you might have gotten really mad at me. And I would remind you of paragraph eight despising the ritual as alien to the heart of the gospel, right? So we hate these formulas because we feel like it's too ritualistic but the ritual themselves form us. Okay.
1: so yes. the three- oh, And also, just for the listener's sake, Mike, I want to say we did a whole episode on the I versus we baptism issue with Dr. Lawrence Feingold, and he walked us through it. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes if they're yes. curious and about
0: and not only that, but everyone needs to get Lawrence Feingold's book Uh, which, unfortunate title, Touched by Christ. (laughs) Man, baby boomers love the phrase, Touched by Christ. I'm like, hey, maybe for the next 10, 20 years, we stop using that phrase. I mean, I get what you're saying, but yikes. Um, (laughs) In light of recent events, right? So uh, what in the document, uh, they take up this dubia right what do we do with people who are not demonstrating outwardly any signs of faith maybe they've communicated that in their sacramental preparation we don't go to mass we don't do this um one of my deacons deacon tom Vignere, he has this great thing marriage is his heart and soul he loves forming couples for marriage and so one of the things that he says that he reminds people is he's like y'all go to mass in his portaranzas accent y'all go to mass and they're like no we don't. And he goes, all right, well, I'm not going to marry you until you start going to Mass. So let's get into faith. Let's love Jesus. Let's love our Lord. And he brings out that full great charismatic side of things, right? He's evangelizing him. And then the next week he meets with them, or two weeks later he meets with them. And he's like, so did you all go to Mass on Sunday? I didn't see you at Mass on Sunday, but we got a bunch of Masses. I could have missed you. And they're like, well, no. And he goes, all right, just a reminder, we have two more meetings. And if you don't go to Mass, we're going to have to delay your wedding. I think your mom is going to be upset after she pays for that floor or whatever you know very human very loving approach to it but they start going to mass and then he does this thing where he has a sacramental guarantee and he's like if ever your marriage is in crisis i will give you a guarantee that i will personally help you out of that crisis so he does the accompaniment the pastoral accompaniment that's what we need more than anything else but this is what we're encountering so someone doesn't believe they come forward for uh the sacrament of holy matrimony what do we do with baptized nonbelievers. There's two kinds of baptized nonbelievers. First, people who baptize as infants but not really raised in the faith. Two, people who were raised in the faith but have rejected it, yet they still have that aspect of being baptized apostates. So what do we do with such folks when they present themselves for marriage? Well, the reason why this is a more complex question than, well, outwardly they, they said the word, so therefore it needs to be t- No, there's a reciprocity between faith and the sacraments. And if there is no faith... What about intention? So the question for marriage in particular has to expand to the goods of marriage. I don't know if you know this, but marriage is kind of in crisis today, John. Did you know that? Yes. (laughs) Yes, very much so. It's in crisis. One of the big things that we have to deal with informing people for marriage is prenuptial agreements. Oh, wow. You, You can't do that in the Catholic Church because you're anticipating divorce. And in the Catholic Church, marriage is permanent. We call it the—oh, uh, the the um, oh my gosh, I'm just blanking—the impermanent— Indissolubility. Yeah, the indissolubility. Oh, good Lord, how about that for me as the marriage prep guy? The indissolubility of Christian marriage. We have to talk about that. We don't just talk about adultery. We don't just talk about premarital sex. We don't just harp on that. We talk about the indissolubility of marriage, that once you say, I do, and if it's valid and you have sufficient consent, then this is real. So then the question becomes— If the couple are the ones who are the ministers of marriage, do they actually have the intentions of the church for the sacrament of marriage? And many do not. Many do not. And many, you know, especially if they sneak in a prenup and just don't tell anyone or they do things like they're already having an affair, which is, you know, the exclusiveness of marriage. Um, I, have, you know, it breaks my heart, but I have met so many couples that have divorced when they find out that the other spouse is cheating on them or all that stuff. Um, before and during, you know, marriage prep, right? So you have this, and it, and it, and it kind of becomes a bigger thing. So you have sacramental um, optimism, which is essentially just because it's done, therefore there's a sacrament. You showed up, that's enough to have the intention. It's like no, no, the, this document says no. It's not. It's not enough just because you showed up and then the other side the other kind of pull of this is well um you know you have to have this absolutely vital profound catholic faith you know the faith of people who listen to you know when was the, the, basically on the prenuptial questionnaire it should say how many times you listen to the classical theism podcast <laughs> um right like that kind of like absolute outward expression of faith no you don't need that either you ought to but if there's an absence of faith all right if there 's an absence of the intention of the church, then you have to say that they did not truly receive Christian marriage, so the conclusion is we really need to leave this up to the rota, the and and the the tribunals to discern this with the people um, because there are serious doubts that if you if you reject the natural goods of, or the goods of natural marriage, then how can you have an intention as a minister of the church in instituting it. So this is a really big deal. This is a huge deal. Um and so in part of defending the dignity of the sacraments, what I do is have incredibly uncomfortable conversations with adults all the time. Right. Right? And you have to. And what I found was a lot of clergy, they not not really at my parish because our deacons have like a zeal for the sacraments of holy matrimony, but I've heard so many people where they're being formed poorly. And they're not being taught what the church – because they're just like, you know what, if we expand our understanding, if we lower the bar, they'll get married. And it's like, yeah, but some of these people aren't married. And you sold them a bill of goods. And now if if their marriage actually does dissolve, right, or if they separate, if they get a divorce, and someone has a conversion and they want to get married, now they got to go through this epic annulment process and all of this stuff that can take two or three years. They might even get denied, like – no, so we really, this is on the pastoral preparation side more than it is, I think, on the tribunal side. We need to equip people with knowledge of the goods of marriage and what it demands. And then we need to delay or or deny in the moment their reception of sacramental matrimony. We need to tell them, like, sorry, you do not want what the church wants. Therefore, you can't give what the church is offering you. Mm-hmm. Right, do you see how hard this is?
1: It's very hard. Right? I'm, I'm thankful that we have people like you doing this work, but it is – no, it is. It's very difficult conversations that you need to have. It's a very difficult topic, but yet if you don't – it's like one of those things that if you don't address it, it's only going to get worse. Yeah. So it, it, it's huge that they're addressing it. Do they come down like with any hard conclusions here or are they kind of just – um, give some exhortations to do certain things, where do they leave the state of the question? So
0: they leave it basically by saying th- there's a lot of points that we need to understand. One, that faith determines very fundamentally the anthropology that is lived. So you can't sit here and say, well, I'm going to have a natural marriage upon which supernatural grace marriage is based on. Um, you can't have that if you deny the very goods of marriage. So this lack of faith, this is what he says, a lack of faith of this caliber in this context makes it possible to doubt on good grounds the existence of a true natural marriage, which is the indispensable basis on which sacramental marriage is based. In other words, due to the lack of faith, the intention can't be assumed to be guaranteed. So the conclusion is essentially we got to reject the two extremes of either you have to have perfect faith or, hey, just because you showed up, that shows that you have the intention but then we need to honestly investigate this stuff uh, in terms okay. of pastoral care. So they do not go yeah. further than that, but they lay out the conditions
1: very well. That's great. No, I'm glad they laid out yeah. those conditions very well. This is a hard topic. Honestly, oh man, this is hard. Because I, I have another hard question that doesn't really relate exactly to that. What it, what but is something it? I've always – you want to hear it? Oh, yeah. I've always struggled to understand philosophically the idea that A baptized non-believer, let's say that they're talking about someone who's left the faith, wants to marry someone who's not Catholic, never been baptized Catholic, and they they don't care about the church anymore, so they don't even give that a thought, and they want to go, but they still believe in marriage being exclusive between a man and a woman for lifelong, and they want to go marry this person, whatever, in a civil ceremony, and the church says That's not a marriage, not even a natural marriage. That's what I've struggled with when I've, uh, to understand philosophically, why can't that count as a natural marriage, um, even if it's not a sacramental union? And the church says, no, it's neither. Yeah. So
0: that's a great question. And the reason being is the efficacy of the, of baptism. Right. Does baptism really change you? Right? right. So again, see the reason why you're questioning that is like, yeah, but the guy doesn't really believe and he's marrying a non believer. And it's like, aha, but he's baptized. Well, I understand yes. that he's baptized, but he's baptized and he's expected to receive the sacrament of holy matrimony within the church. And so <laughs> he, it's not a natural marriage because he's not a natural person. He's a supernatural oh, person. That's good. Right? He's a supernatural person. And so he has to, like, it's like being born in America and trying to claim that you're no, you, you don't have to follow America's laws, right? That's a stupid analogy, but it works for this case. Like, Jesus Christ has claimed him and incorporated him into the church. Through apostasy, this person might be abandoning the church, right? But he still remains just as much as Judas remained a part of the church. I think the bigger question of all of these things is it goes back to how do we view what it means to be the church? Mm. If you view the church as twofold, a visible and an invisible one, and you see an incongruence between the two like Martin Luther did – where he said, well, there's the invisible church, that's the saved going to heaven. Then there's a visible church, which is the outward sign, the institutions, all that stuff. Some people in the visible church are in the invisible church, but some people who are in the visible church are not. And the Catholic church has always rejected that. There are not two churches. There are not two bodies of Christ. There is one church. There's church militant, church suffering, and church triumphant. But there is only one church. There's only one body of Christ. And you can be a mortal sinner apostate who receives condemnation, but that doesn't mean that you're not a part of the church any more than being an apostle named Judas meant that he wasn't a part of the church. And so we say like, okay, so there's a reason why people believe that inward faith is all that it takes because they have an invisible view of the church. But we believe the church is a body, right? It's incarnational. It's sacramental. To belong to the invisible church is to belong to the visible church. They're not two separate things, And this is the problem, like you can understand, now we're talking about ecclesiology. We're not just talking about salvation history in the Bible. We're talking about how we view the very act of being a Christian is incorporation into the body. That man is incorporated into the body, but that man refuses to do what the body is asking. Right mm. and so that 's where it becomes now the whole idea of natural marriage for those who are listening don 't know if a Catholic marries an unbaptized person, they do not have a sacramental marriage, they have a natural marriage. If the unbaptized person like they whoa, whoa,
1: whoa. no, 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 you just said a Catholic, yeah, if a
0: Roman Catholic oh, got a valid I'm sorry, I marriage, cut it. it has to be a valid yes. marriage in the Catholic Church. To a non-Christian, a non-baptized, or, or, or a, a, a believer who's never been baptized, because there's a lot of people who reject baptism, right?
1: Right, right, right. church. Yeah,
0: um, those persons are in a natural marriage, not a sacramental marriage, because their spouse has not been sacramentalized, has not been repristinated and incorporated into the body of Christ. And so what I always try to do for those couples is I try to woo and evangelize the heck out of that spouse. And it's like, no, I don't think about Catholicism. I'm Jewish. It's like, hey, that's awesome. I love Judaism. I I was actually asked to be the Jewish chaplain in the prison that I'm at. Um, Listen, I get it. I get it. However, Jesus, (laughs) I always want to bring them. So oftentimes we'll have Baptists who are never baptized, which is somewhat ironic. But they'll be like 20 years old and they're like, oh, you know, 25, something like that. I've never done it. And it's like, okay, go to your Baptist church and get baptized. Demand baptism. Say you're ready to be baptized. Make that public profession. Follow the ordinance of Christ. Don't be disobedient. Repent to be baptized. Every one of you, uh, Acts chapter 2 says. So go do that so that it can be a sacrament for him. Because here's the beautiful thing. When you have a valid natural marriage, the moment that person becomes sacramentalized, the, the, the union, the natural marriage becomes supernatural. And that's important. It can't become supernatural when the Catholic is in the state of apostasy.
1: Yes. Oh, that's so big. I'm so glad I asked you that because that really helps. The the idea is it just so creeps in, like the secularization, even in my own mind, that baptism doesn't doesn't really do anything. But no, that's our faith. It really (laughs) changed them. And there's really a different scenario here. There's a really tough case about uh, in the 19th century where a. Well, we're not going to get into the details of this, but you probably know where I'm going to go with that. I'll, I'll link to it. It's discussed in a Call to Communion article, but it nice. has to deal with in one of the papal states when a daughter in a Jewish family, or it might have been a son, was they thought was in danger of death. And yeah. so a maid um, or someone who was helping yeah. baptized her secretly or him. I can't remember if it was a boy or a girl at the moment. And so like what happens after that? And it was like a whole. Yeah, big,
0: there's a movie being made about it.
1: Oh, there is. Yeah. Okay, so then we're going to have to bone up on that. Brian Cross has a great comment on it under one of his articles that I just have flagged. If I ever need to discuss this, I just read those three paragraphs. So maybe I'll link to that in the show notes <laughs> page as well. But Michael Gormley, if you had to sum it up, we've talked a lot about faith and the sacraments. Just give us your you know, your bottom line, 30 to 60 seconds. What is the Catholic way of understanding faith and the sacraments? What do you want to leave us yeah. with?
0: It is Jesus Christ's death, and resurrection that paves the way for our divine adoption for us to become repristinated in Christ and to come home to the father. The sacraments are the, in the age of the church, the sacraments are the ways that Christ pours forth his power to make you sons and daughters of Christ in faith. So first you believe. And then from that belief, you seek baptism, confirmation, communion, confession, holy matrimony, holy orders. You seek these things because the human person needs the divine grace And Christ has given us a way through his holy church to communicate that grace. All you have to do is be worthy of that reception. Say yes to Christ in every aspect of your life. That's the beauty of a sacramental reality.
1: Amen. Michael Gormley, thanks again for joining us on the Classical Theism Podcast. Just remind listeners, where should they go to find out more about your work? And then we'll say goodbye.
0: Yeah. uh, So you can find my work. I do a podcast called Catching Foxes, a young adult podcast. Um, That is uh, a hoot and a half. And then I do another podcast called Every Knee's Shabao. You can find the back episodes on uh, Ascension Press's website. You go to Ascension Press and you click media and podcasts. Um, I have that layevangelist.com. If you want me to come to your church and talk about the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments and the sacramental economy, Um, I'm doing a bunch of formation events for diocese uh, on this document, which is funny. Now now I'm the American ambassador of this document. I love it. Um, But yeah, so that's basically it. Those two podcasts and then my website, layevangelist.com.
1: Awesome. Well, I will make sure to link to all that in the show notes page, but thanks again for joining us today. It's been a blast.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me.